From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez. Former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner says he's ready to pull a Schwarzenegger-style recall on Gavin Newsom. Now, if that doesn't happen, he says he'll try to take him on next year. We'll hear what his chances are. Plus, how hunting the Night Stalker around L.A. made one of the detectives wish for the next crime to happen just so he could get one step closer to catching him. It's all ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for being with us. Coming up on the show, a new streaming series titled Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, looks back on the crime spree of Richard Ramirez over the spring and summer of 1985. I'm going to talk with one of the L.A. County Sheriff's deputies who was tasked with tracking him down, and he admits that this case sent him down a hole so dark that he almost couldn't wait for the next time Ramirez struck just so he could feel like he was one step closer to catching him. That's coming up a little later on. But we're going to start with the governor, or more specifically, someone who wants to take over as the governor if California mounts a recall election on Gavin Newsom. Now, on paper, it would appear that a Republican would not have a snowball's chance in Death Valley of ever again becoming governor of California anytime soon. I mean, the state is just that blue these days. But a recall election might change things. And this morning, the former mayor of San Diego launched his bid to test that theory. I'm Kevin Faulkner. I'm running for governor for the great state of California because it's time for a California comeback. KPCC's Libby Dankman was at the Kevin Faulkner campaign launch event in San Pedro today, and she joins us live to tell us all about it. Hello, Libby. Hey, A. All right, we're going to get uh, into the recall effort uh, in just a minute because Faulkner is running for an election that uh, might not happen. But first, uh, Libby, what's the core case he's making for his candidacy? Sure. Faulkner talked about some brass tax conservative principles this morning. He said one party rule in the state with Democrats in control in Sacramento has resulted in high taxes, job losses and worsening homelessness. He argues the criminal justice reforms Newsom advocated uh, have quote, empowered criminals. Those are criminal justice reforms that Newsom supported. And most of all, Falconer also added that the current governor has botched the state's pandemic response. Falconer claimed that closing outdoor dining and playgrounds was not based on science, though that's not the conclusion the state's Department of Health came to. And most of all, the Republican focused on frustrations of families whose kids go to public schools that are still closed due to COVID. The press conference itself, was held outside of a public elementary school in San Pedro, which is currently closed, while the private school across the street is open. Parents across California are fed up, and they are demanding that their kids be back in school. Public schools should start safely reopening now. Not next month, not next year, now. Falconer also turned this into a dig at Newsom, making the case that it's unfair for the governor to send his own kids to private schools that have been able to get waivers to reopen while working class kids are still at home trying to learn online. All right. So he's playing the hypocrisy card, which, along with uh, the French laundry dinner, could actually play well with people who are out of patience uh, with public health orders. Uh, You ask Falconer about homelessness, uh, too, as well, because that's a really a big top issue for Angelinos. 
Absolutely. Falconer defended his record on fighting homelessness in San Diego. While in office, the former mayor dealt with a hepatitis A epidemic that was centered in homeless encampments downtown, and it killed 20 people and sickened hundreds others. He claimed that that was a turning point that spurred him to action, and he doubled homeless services spending between 2017 and 2019. He opened bridge shelters and safe parking lots in the city. And last year, he was praised for temporarily converting part of the massive downtown San Diego Convention Center into a homeless shelter. But critics say Falconer's tenure was marked by police cracking down on homeless people and criminalizing camping on the street. Homeless advocates argued that police scared people and muddied the waters of official homeless counts, which showed the number of unsheltered people in San Diego dropping by double digits between 2019 and 2020. Advocates said that that was because people were scared and driven into hiding by aggressive enforcement. At his press conference, Falconer said he was proud of his actions. I did not allow tents on the sidewalk in San Diego because I believe if you allow somebody to live on a tent on your sidewalk, you're condemning them to die in that tent on your sidewalk. We're better than that as Californians. That's why we made a huge difference. All in all, as mayor of San Diego, Falconer says he learned a lot about the need for a combination of wraparound services and housing, and especially about the need to place people in permanent supportive housing once the bridge shelters run their course. All right, let's uh, rewind for a second, because even though San Diego is just 100 miles away for many Angelinos, they might be hearing the name Kevin Falconer for the first time. So Libby, who is Kevin Falconer? Faulkner served two terms on the San Diego City Council and was elected mayor in 2014 uh, in a special election. You might remember when San Diego's former mayor, Bob Filner, resigned amidst sexual harassment allegations and later pleaded guilty to false imprisonment and battery. During Faulkner's nearly seven years leading San Diego, he was a rare Republican leading a solidly blue city. And he always inspired talk about what he was going to do next, this potential for higher office. Uh, He resisted pressure from his party to challenge Newsom in the 2018 gubernatorial election. And then last month, he endorsed this Newsom recall effort and launched a campaign exploratory committee, allowing him to begin fundraising. All right. So Kevin Faulkner says he wants to take over the state. uh, But will he get the chance to be on the ballot because the next regular election is in 2022? So what's going on with uh, this recall effort? So recall sponsors face a March 17th deadline to gather almost one and a half million verified signatures if they want to make the ballot this year. County registrars then have until April 29th to verify those signatures. Two groups called California Patriot Coalition and Rescue California are gathering signatures for the effort. The most recent report and summary A show that the statewide total of valid signatures is over 400,000. That's of early January. However, we don't have a more recent report than that. Yeah, so that sounds like they're a a long way off. Maybe, but according to the campaign, the recall folks themselves, things have been accelerating. They've been gaining momentum and donors since a judge extended the deadline to collect signatures. And the campaign just announced that its total number of raw signatures gathered is 1.3 million. Again, that's raw, not verified by county registrars yet. 
however, to safely clear the bar, factoring in the verification and assuming that a lot will be thrown out, recall sponsors say that they have to hit a target of about 1.8 million. And if a special election is eventually called, it's important to note that Newsom could still beat it at the ballot box. A potential special election ballot would have two questions. Do you want to recall Governor Newsom? Yes or no. And if yes, who should replace him? And this question only comes into play if more than 50% of voters approve the recall. Importantly, if Newsom is removed by voters, a the winner of the recall election only needs to win a plurality of votes cast. And that's uh, how Arnold Schwarzenegger won in 2003. He didn't win a majority, but uh, with 135 candidates on the ballot back then, he was able to scrape together enough support to come out the winner. Yeah, Republicans make up less than a quarter of registered voters. And there are some indications that Falconer would have to look to Schwarzenegger for this narrow path to be competitive in a recall race. There's uh, no clear sign yet how many total candidates will jump in. But 135, I mean, if we saw that again, things might get pretty unpredictable. Uh, I talked to political consultant Dan Schnur, who teaches at USC and UC Berkeley. He said that Democratic Governor Gray Davis was recalled in 2003 and replaced by Schwarzenegger because of grassroots conservative activists, so folks on the further right who really worked hard to get the issue on the ballot. But then ultimately, it was a centrist candidate, Schwarzenegger, who was able to consolidate conservatives and win. He took advantage of this long shot recall effort and broad dissatisfaction in 2003 over Davis's handling of the electricity and economic crises. Uh, But things will undoubtedly be a lot harder now for any Republican than they were in 2003. The voter registration numbers continue to trend away from the GOP. The recent president, Donald Trump, is a toxic brand in California, to say the least. And let's be honest, a Kevin Falconer, it's no Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie star. I mean, the name recognition, there's no comparison. (laughs) No, you're right. Absolutely right. Hey, actually, now that you mention it, uh, fast forward to today because a new poll from Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies, uh, it looks like it could be something that Gavin Newsom might have to worry about. You know, the poll found that just 46 percent of registered voters approve of Newsom's performance as governor, while 48 percent disapprove and 31 percent of those disapprove strongly. More than a third said they would vote to recall Newsom if the petition qualifies for the ballot. Uh, The poll was conducted last week. It asked uh, 10,000 registered voters these questions. But it does show a big shift from last year when large majorities approved of the job that Newsom was doing. All right. Now, I know you're going to be keeping track of how many uh, recall signatures uh, are going to be compiled as the uh, months go on. But let me know uh, what's coming up next. Yeah, for sure. eh? It's going to also be a really expensive race. I mean, I want to point that out because... uh, Picking a new governor will require, if there is a recall election, maybe $100 million of taxpayer money on a special election. Uh, Supporters of the recall, however, say it's worth it to right the ship and stop Newsom's mismanagement. It's definitely the best and probably only chance for a Republican to be moving into the governor's mansion anytime soon for the foreseeable future in California, however. All right. That's KPCC's uh, senior politics reporter, Libby Dankman. Libby, thanks a lot. Thanks, eh?
All right, that was politics. Uh, Next, coronavirus, because right now California's kids are some of the most vulnerable in all of the state. Uh, We'll have more about it when Take Two continues in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. We've been talking a lot about the challenges to fighting COVID-19 lately. From the debate over speed versus equity when it comes to vaccine distribution to how the virus is affecting children and especially Latino kids throughout California. With us to answer some of our many coronavirus-related questions from the vaccine rollout to getting kids back to school, we have Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Doctor, uh, yesterday we talked about COVID-19 case numbers among kids in California, specifically Latino kids. Um, What have you been seeing in terms of how the virus is impacting different communities in the city that you use uh, in your hospital? Yeah, we're certainly seeing an increased number of cases, um, disproportionate number of cases in Latino children. Um, we're also seeing um, not only um, cases, but the MIS-C, the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children in Latino children. So they're, they're definitely disproportionately affected. And we're going to get to that uh, syndrome in just a second. Wondering, though, is, is there any one maybe antidote to any case that has stayed with you that uh, you'd feel comfortable sharing? Oh, there's been a lot of cases. Um, You know, some of the kids have been very sick and they've been in the ICU, some of them on ventilators. Those are always really scary cases. Um, And then there's the the kids with the inflammatory syndrome who come in scary sick and then they they get better pretty quickly, too. So that's that's pretty satisfying. But one thing I've seen is it just, you know, it's just heartbreaking to see the families where this happens to because it's often the parents or grandparents are also infected and sometimes a child's admitted to the hospital and and maybe their grandparent had had recently died from this. Um, so it's really, it's very difficult on families. You know, doctor, my son, when he was a, a kid, had really, really bad asthma. He's a grown-up now. He's an adult, um, but, you know, and he's got it under control, but I'm terrified over, you know, something happening where it'll just attack his asthma, um, you know, at some point. So I'm wondering, when it comes to kids who have severe asthma or similar respiratory conditions, how vulnerable are those particular kids? Those are the kids who are going to be more prone to having the severe pneumonia, having the ICU admissions. Those with asthma, diabetes, obesity, renal disease, those are the kids we really worry about. Previously healthy children without risk factors, it's pretty unlikely for them to be um, admitted to the hospital in the ICU. They might have a, a, a touch of pneumonia or maybe need to be admitted to the hospital, but generally they're not that sick for the ICU. It's the kids with risk factors that I worry about. What kinds of extra precautions maybe should these parents take? 
Well, the present time, you know, if, if they are, um, if they're uh, available to be vaccinated, then, you know, eligible parents should be vaccinated. That helps protect the child. And then following all the routine precautions, the masking and social distancing are really your best protection. Now, doctor, uh, you mentioned multi-symptom inflammatory syndrome, uh, M-I-S-C. We've discussed this on the show before. Remind us, though, first, the risks here and how concerned we should be about it uh, at this point. So what happens is these children end up about three to four weeks following infection. They have fever, rash, and then several different systems involved, including the gastrointestinal system. Sometimes it affects their heart. And um, they might have low blood pressure. So they end up admitted to the hospital. Their um, inflammation levels are really off the charts. And, um, and sometimes they need to be in the intensive care unit on support for their blood pressure with epinephrine and other pressors. Is there any way to know if, you know, say, a particular kid is maybe more vulnerable than, an, than another? It just seems like it's, it's, uh, it's luck of the draw almost. Right now, that's how we feel about it. Yeah, wow. we haven't worked that out. I mean, th- th- there's got to be a way to predict who's at higher risk than others, but we really haven't worked that out yet. It's still fairly uncommon, though, right? It's not that common, but we do see it um, uh, three or four weeks following each of the surges that we've uh. seen. And so, like, you know, right now, we're, we've, we've had many cases in the last month. And so right now, we're seeing a lot of these children admitted to the hospital. And what is the treatment uh, when, when you see one of these kids? So the treatment depends on how sick they are and the level of um, and, and and the risk factors that they have. But in general, the treatment is anti-inflammatory, such as steroids. Sometimes it's giving um, antibody therapy, such as intravenous immune globulin. And they are prone to clotting also. And so they'll get something to prevent clots. Um, in mild cases, they'll get um, aspirin. In other cases, they'll get more um, potent anticoagulants. All right, doctor, let's get into the vaccines. Uh, As of now, there is not a COVID-19 vaccine available for most children, and there may not be one available for a while. So what's uh, behind the delay? Well, part of this is normal vaccine development. As you normally start, the first studies, the phase one and two studies, are in healthy adults with no comorbidities, young adults. And then you gradually expand. So in this case, the push was to expand to older adults because we know that they're at increased risk for severe infections. So that's what the phase two and three studies um, were involved, and they included robust numbers of those over 65. Once we know these vaccines are safe and effective, then the next step is then to go down in age. So um, studies are underway in children 12 to 16 years of age, and we hope to have studies soon in even younger children. It's going to sound like a really dumb question, doctor, but it, same vaccine for children as for adults? Would there be? It's the yeah, yeah. It's it's not a dumb question because sometimes we give different vaccines for children and adults because their immune systems are different yeah. and they're at risk for um, different infections. So right now, it's the same vaccines are being used that have been proven to be um, safe and effective for adults, and they're being used in in children who do have different immune systems. So we're not sure if the dose needs to be adjusted or how that how they're going to react to them. You know, doctor, some of our listeners have submitted questions to us about. 
about the vaccine and they're worried about potential side effects of the vaccine, specifically for their children uh, ages 16 and up. One listener was worried about reproductive health side effects for her daughter. So, doctor, what potential side effects are you aware of at this point, if any, exist? Yeah, I'm not aware of any potential reproductive side effects. I know that some have brought this up based on theoretical concerns, which are really unfounded. Um, and so the, so I, I feel um, very comfortable giving this to men and women of reproductive age um, and to others. We've also heard from uh, grandparents who have been vaccinated and now want to see their grandkids. So to review, doctor, what does the vaccine protect people from and what does it not protect people from? So the vaccines that we're using now are 90 to 95% effective in preventing um, people from getting symptomatic infection. We don't have robust data on transmission. So we're not sure if after you're vaccinated, if you can transmit to others, that's still not known. And we haven't changed any recommendations regarding masking, social distancing, or PPE use based on vaccination status yet. I do anticipate over the next few weeks to months that we will have some changes and we will have some relaxing of the masking and social distancing recommendations based on vaccination status. And and as far as we know, even if people are fully inoculated, uh, people can still contract the virus and spread it. Yes. And so there's been very little data on that. But in the Moderna study, they did do swabs of people after the first dose who were asymptomatic. And they did find 50% less people in the vaccine group um, were swab positive compared to the placebo group. So we do feel that if you're vaccinated, you're less likely to transmit. But you could be completely asymptomatic and still serve as a source of transmission to others, even if you're vaccinated. So grandma and grandpa still stay away from your grandkids. As tough as it is to hear, still stay away for for the time being until further notice. Right. And I, you know, I have to tell you, I like fully understand that because after I received my vaccine, the first thing I thought of was, hey, now I don't have to wear a mask. Right. And we can like go out and do stuff. And then I thought, wait a second, that's your heart speaking. Think about it logically. You just can't do that. That heart, that heart is a, can be a big pain, can't it, doctor? Because (laughs) Mm -hmm. it argues with your brain sometimes. And if you're, hopefully your brain is smarter. Now uh, we're speaking with Dr. Uh, Dean Blumberg, professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis uh, Children's Hospital. Uh, Staying with the vaccines, doctor, earlier in January, the state uh, put out a note to clarify that family members who care for children or other relatives with special needs can be considered healthcare workers and therefore eligible to get the vaccine. Can you clarify who exactly this applies to? I'm afraid I can't clarify that. And the simple explanation for that is that I'm not sure that everybody has worked out who qualifies for that. So, um, you know, it seems simple, but for healthcare providers, for vaccination sites, they may not be able to prove that when somebody comes in and says, I'm the sole caretaker of my elderly grandparent or great grandparent or um, my son or something else who has special needs, you know, they may not be able to prove that or verify that. And so I think it, what I'm hearing is it varies by site. And so some sites will be able to verify that, other sites won't. So I think there's going to be a slow rollout of uh, for that segment of the population. Okay, good. Yeah, if we're, if we're talking about kids here and only one parent in a household qualifies, how effective is it? If the goal is to protect, you know, immunocompromised children, wouldn't it be better to vaccinate just everyone in the family rather than just the caregiver? I mean, how much protection can one person being vaccinated offer to the kid? 
Yeah, I think uh, I think obviously the more people vaccinated in a household, the safer yeah. it's going to be. But you could also think of the probably the two most important people to be vaccinated to protect that child. One is the person who's closest to that child, who's really taking care of them. And then the other one might be the person who's out and about in the world, the one who's designated for grocery shopping and, and other errands. Doctor, I know you're not an obstetrician, uh, but another question that listeners have asked, several listeners actually, is uh, whether it's safe to get the vaccine if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. So wondering if you have any guidance on that. Yeah, so the CDC has what I would consider permissive language on that. They say that if a woman is part of a group like healthcare personnel who's recommended to receive the vaccine and they're pregnant or lactating, then they may choose to be vaccinated. You know, I, I think that's pretty pretty weak statement. You know, we know that women who are pregnant have an increased risk of severe illness. They have a two to time two to three times increased risk of ICU admission, being on a ventilator, and death. And they might be at increased risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes also, such as uh, premature um, birth. So I, I think there's um, every reason to believe that the vaccines would be effective during pregnancy. And there are no theoretical reasons that I think that the vaccine would be um, harmful to the pregnant woman um, or to the developing fetus or to lactating women or their breastfeeding child. One more thing, doctor, on cramps. I just, it just uh, hit me a little bit. Uh, so. Just, just to be clear, you, would you recommend that grandma, grandpa sees the family after being vaccinated if there's a safe way to do it? Any safe way at all to do that? Well, what we do know is this, that 90% of transmission that's occurring is occurring indoors. So if you can be with people outdoors, ideally masking and social distancing, that's the way to do it. That's the safest way to interact with other people in person. Indoors is the worst way, and especially indoors when you're not masking and social distancing. Okay, there you go. Now, uh, moving on. Last week, uh, federal health officials at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention called for kids to nationwide to return to classrooms as soon as possible, so long as students and teachers, as, as you've been mentioning, doctor, keep their distance and wear masks. Can you share the medical evidence for and against a return to in-person learning nationwide right now? Schools are safe for children as long as you have the adequate masking and social distancing available, as well as as adequate testing and contact tracing. And we know this. We've got proof of this. We've got um, information from school districts in um, in North Carolina where they found over nine weeks and 11 participating school districts. They had more than 90,000 students and staff attend school in person and only 32 infections acquired within schools. So that's one infection out of every 2,800 students over nine weeks or one infection per 25,000 students per week. I think that's an extraordinarily low rate. And we've got similar figures from the UK, um, from schools all the way from preschools to grade schools to secondary schools, which um, in the UK would be the um, the older children, like equivalent to high school. And they've got um, about uh, about six less than six students out of every 100,000 per day who they found were infected. And for staff, it was similar. It was um, less than 10 out of every 100,000. So we know this can be done safely. We'd love to get children back in school for learning and for their emotional and social development. Is there anything California could do where you would feel good about having kids come back to school in California? 
Again, I think that's a question of, of making sure that administration can provide for adequate masking and social distancing at the schools and for the school districts to have the personnel to be able to have testing set up when that's needed and then contact tracing when there are cases so that they can limit spread. And then on the COVID-19 variants that we've been hearing about, how does this affect the conversation that we're having about children and COVID-19? Have you seen uh, evidence that these new strains could maybe pose more of a risk? Well, I think they can pose more of a risk to all of us. Um, and, and, and so I think they're going to be driving the next phase of the pandemic. I mean, the CDC predicts that the UK variant is going to be the dominant um, strain transmitted um, in the US sometime in, in March, early to mid-March. So we are going to see these variants. And really, the question is how far they're going to vary. And are they going to escape um, vaccine-induced immunity to a significant level. We know that va- vaccines are probably going to be less effective against some of these variants, but if they're 5 or 10% less effective, you know that probably won't be that significant compared to some of the variants like the South African variant, where it looks like you know maybe they'll be two to three times less effective. So that would be more of a concern. All right. That's Dr. Dean Blumberg, professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Dr. Blumberg, thank you very much. Great. Thank you. All right. New L.A. District Attorney George Gascon has made a few waves in his short time in the seat. Uh, We'll get more on that when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, Ami Martinez. L.A. District Attorney George Gascon is back in court this morning to defend his sweeping new policies designed to reduce mass incarceration and end racial disparities in the justice system. The union that represents his prosecutors has sued Gascon, saying his policies amount to an end run around state law. Now, this is already causing problems for the D.A. on the front lines. KPCC's Frank Stoltz reports on how Gascon's new policies played out in one case. On the 11th floor of the downtown criminal courts building, Judge Mark Arnold is hearing motions in a Mother's Day double murder of two 15-year-old boys and wounding of two others. All right, we'll go on the record in uh, Nancy De La Rocha and Edwin Loza. The three defendants are believed to have mistaken the boys for rival gang members when they opened fire on them as they walked home from a party in South L.A. two years ago. Trial is still a few months away, The hearing is mostly a procedural bore. 
until the judge turns to the prosecutor. Now, I, I understand that, Mr. Michelina, you have a motion. The prosecutor, Deputy District Attorney Michael Michelina, addresses the judge. There is a motion that I've been directed to make from the district attorney to dismiss all allegations of any kind. Allegations are also known as sentencing enhancements. They're additional charges that can add many years to a sentence. In this case, Michelena is asking the judge to drop enhancements for using a gun and belonging to a gang, and one for committing multiple murders, which could mean life without parole. If the judge agrees, the defendants would still face at least 50 years in prison. What happens next is extraordinary. Michelena says the motion Gascon ordered him to make is illegal, citing a section of the state penal code. The district attorney may not, just on their own, abandon a prosecution for a public offense. He echoes the arguments in the lawsuit filed by the prosecutor's union against Gascon. It claims the DA cannot move to dismiss enhancements in hundreds of cases all at once. A dismissal in the furtherance of justice must be based on individualized considerations. It cannot be based on antipathy for the law or a belief that the law is unwise. Gascon has made it clear he thinks enhancements are unwise. He points to studies that show they're a big driver of the mass incarceration of mostly black and brown men. In defending his directive to drop them, he argues DAs have wide discretion. But there's nobody in the courtroom to argue this, since his own prosecutor refuses to do it. Judge Arnold issues his ruling on the spot. The position of the district attorney in seeking dismissal of special allegations has no legal authority. It is of no legal precedent. In rejecting the prosecutor's motion, the judge says he has to consider what's in the interest of justice, which is not strictly defined under state law. To me, it doesn't even come close to rising to the level required for a finding that a dismissal should be in the interest of justice. Outside court, I catch up with one of the defense attorneys, Robert Schwartz. What did you think of the ruling? Were you surprised? This was uh, a ruling that was par for the course. This is the, the reaction that the judiciary is providing all over the county to these motions, especially on these serious cases. At the same time, some judges are granting Gascon's motions to dismiss sentencing enhancements, and some number of prosecutors are backing Gascon. In this case, Courtney Williams, the godmother of one of the boys murdered, La Marion Upchurch is glad the judge kept all of the enhancements. She says she's frustrated Gascon wanted to reduce the charges. I mean, it's crazy because I actually voted for him. Williams still agrees with the DA that some people are overcharged, but not all, and not the alleged killers of her beloved godson. They're just wicked heathens, and I'm glad that those charges are standing, and I hope they rot in the hell. And I hope they get what's coming to them, which is a long prison term. To be sure, not all victims and families feel this way. Still, after less than two months in office, Gascon finds his policies under attack on three fronts, from victims, judges, and his own prosecutors. The DA is finding out how hard it is to implement far-reaching changes in how L.A. County administers justice. Covering criminal justice, I'm Frank Stoltz.
Over the spring and summer of 1985, Los Angeles was terrorized by the brutal crime spree of serial killer Richard Ramirez. Now, a new streaming series follows that chase through the lens of his victims and also from the cops tasked with tracking and catching the Night Stalker before he struck again. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and most places where you get your podcasts. Tommy Martinez. From June of 1984 to August of 85, serial killer Richard Ramirez terrorized Los Angeles. He was called the Night Stalker, and when his gruesome run was over, he was ultimately convicted of 13 murders, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. A new Netflix series dives into the crime spree and what it took to catch him. It's called Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. One of the people featured is Gil Carrillo, one of the L.A. County Sheriff's detectives tasked with tracking down Ramirez. Uh, Welcome. Thank you for having me. Sure. Now, you were uh, essentially a rookie in the Homicide Bureau at the time when you were paired up with lead detective Frank Salerno. Salerno's the guy who uh, nabbed the Hillside Strangler in the 1970s. As the crimes started to pile up, when and how did you get a sense that uh, you were searching for a serial killer? It was early on where I could see some circumstances that were leading to believe that one person was committing crimes, both of pedophile in nature and, in fact, the murders. And I attended a meeting in April. I wrote a search warrant of 1985, linking things together. However, it was difficult at that time to believe that one man was responsible for everything since nobody in criminal history had ever been documented doing what Richard did. That was rare, wasn't it, to have someone commit crimes against adults and children? It just just didn't seem to match up. Nobody had ever heard of it. It hadn't been documented. And it really wasn't until the end of June that Frank Salerno and I hooked up for our first murder. And what about the way the crimes were being committed? Because you had this hunch, you had this hunch, Gil, that you were searching for one person and and people laughed at you. I mean, your own colleagues were laughing at you, uh, thinking that you're just some brash young rookie that's uh, trying to make a name for himself. So what made you convinced that your hunch was right? Well, I I laugh because they used to laugh at me and and certainly it hurt down deep inside. Uh, But I laugh today and we've laughed over the years over it. When you talk about profiling, I had never been through any kind of profiling school, but there was a professor at Cal State LA by the name of Dr. Robert Morneau, and I took two semesters of advanced criminal investigations, and he instilled in me that part of the sign of a sexual deviant is they like to see the frightened look on people's faces, and they dominate people. Well, he was doing things at the first uh, murder that we had on 17th. He made a deliberate noise. He could have come up behind Maria Hernandez and shot her in the back. He didn't. He wanted her to see him. Same thing with Dale Okazaki. Same thing with Sai Lin Yu right there immediately after in Monterey Park. The surviving victim, Marie Hernandez, gave us a physical description. The identical drawing from an abducted child or an attempt abduction looked just like very similar to the staff artist rendition. 
Yeah, and one man uh, was doing it. Uh, now, you know, over the years, Gil, TV shows and movies have taught us that serial killers uh, fall into predictable patterns, which leads to them getting caught. But it seemed like Richard Ramirez was different. Uh, here's how KNBC News producer Paul Skolnick remembered it. A killer who walked into the home, no apparent reason, sometimes robbed him, sometimes didn't, sometimes raped, sometimes didn't. No one particular race of victim, type of victim. We had not seen anything like that in Southern California before. And the more you thought about it, the more you said, could I be next? Gil, how unpredictable was Richard Ramirez, and how did that unpredictability make him tough to catch? Well, that's what made it so difficult. Uh, We were going off of human descriptions and then of course we had this definitive shoe print of which in tracking down the shoe print there was 1356 pair arrived in new york for distribution throughout the u.s and of which six pair ended up in the state of california one pair ended up in la so you had that matching print that helped definitively make it one man but he was all over the place his only consistency was his inconsistency yeah now, Rio, you admitted in the in the series that uh, in some ways you might have been hoping for another murder so that you could somehow get closer to cracking the case. Can you explain in a little more detail what you were going through? You know, you, you become frustrated. You're working every clue you possibly can. And the man was good at his craft. And if we don't have a lot of evidence, you're looking for him to make a mistake. You want one more crack at it, make another, do something else. Let's find that mistake. Certainly, I didn't wish death on anybody, but I did want him to be active so I could get another crack at a clue, and that's what eventually broke the case. Could someone do what he did back then with DNA technology, DNA evidence today? Nobody really knows what he was doing, so that's why we haven't had a copycat killer. Mm. But there are more things today that would help capture him a little easier. But the good, even you know, everybody sees DNA as the solution to everything. Yeah. If in fact you've been in trouble with the law. Then you've got DNA on file. If you've never had an encounter with the law, then there is no DNA. So if they have DNA, it does absolutely no good until you find somebody to match it to. We're talking to Gil Carrillo, L.A. County Sheriff's Detective from the Netflix series Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. Um, Gil, I was 13, living in Koreatown, just a couple of blocks away from where Richard Ramirez's stolen orange Toyota station wagon was found. So that, that I mean, terrified me to know that he was that close to where I lived. And I, and I read and I watched all the coverage of this case because in many ways, I think the media played a big role in framing who Los Angeles was on the lookout for. Uh, here's uh, KNBC's Laurel Erickson and Paul Skolnick again. Journalists wanted to give this unknown monster a name. KNBC, our boss, named him the walk-in killer. The walk-in killer. It's the walk-in killer. The so-called the walk-in, walk-in killer. killer. And then there was a valley intruder. Meanwhile, the so-called valley intruder task force continues its search. Then one morning in August, we woke up and the Herald Examiner called him the Night Stalker. And that was the branding that stuck. Gil, in this case, how much did the media help and hurt the investigation? <laughs> the media, you know, it's funny because Laurel Erickson and myself uh, ended up as good friends by the time everything was all said and done, and we still keep in touch. Uh, the media was a hindrance. We try to keep as much as possible out of the media. Uh, Laurel Erickson, she captured us outside the Hall of Justice, and she got nabbed us in a stand-up. We were actually ordered to wait until she got into position. 
because she had information that was very essential to the case, that footprint. She talked to uh, our captain and said she either wanted to get us on an interview or she would be forced to go ahead and release that information. There's no doubt in my mind that uh, Laurel never would have released that information. Laurel was just good at what she did. (laughs) But at that time, since I was so wrapped up in the investigation, uh, I was angry enough. I wanted to arrest her. (laughs) I wanted to hook her up for extortion or 148, you know, interfering with the investigation. But they didn't. They they wanted to report everything, and they were it was like a food frenzy. Gil, did it help at all to give Richard Ramirez this name, the Night Stalker, to kind of create this image uh, because it put everyone on pins and needles all over LA, and I I'd, I'd argue, Gil, that it put everyone's head on a swivel. Everyone was looking out for this guy. Well, don't ask. You know, we don't control names. That was the media. Mm. The media was putting that out. You know, and every time they called up, they were asking, "Do you have a name for this guy yet?" We all told him the same thing. We called him suspect. Now, Gil, while you made the connection early on that the crimes were committed by one person, and it was someone uh, possibly named Rick, ultimately it was San Francisco Police Inspector Frank Falzone who got the full name of the person that uh, you were looking for. Here's a clip of Falzone from the series recapping what happened. Now, just to set it up, he's questioning someone, and he had already punched this person once before asking again for the name one more time. And I said, pretty boy, I'm going to split you from the top of your head to your ass. And I put my fist up against the windshield and I started over the back seat, hell bent on demolishing this guy. He threw his hands up in a cross and he fell back in his seat. And he said, Richard Ramirez, Richard Ramirez. Gil, what do you make of the way Frank Falzone got the job done? <laughs> Well, let me, let me say that period of time, Los Angeles County Sheriff's homicide, uh, never confused those tactics. San Francisco was their own agency. I heard what the, he said, just like everybody else at the time. All I can say is it wouldn't have happened, uh, like that downtown because you may lose doing something like that may cost you in the long run to lose some evidence. Uh, DOJ had, uh, I want to say they narrowed it down to eight Richard Ramirez's that had been arrested in misdemeanors. Of course, they had latent prints on file. So they matched this Richard, our Richard, to a latent print at booking, and they I positively identified him. Now, Ramirez eventually was caught uh, August 31st, 1985 in East L.A. by locals as he tried to carjack some cars as he was on the run. Um, Gil, when you finally had the chance to be face-to-face with him, this this ghost that you're chasing for 167 days, I mean, what kind of closure were you hoping to get? I was just satisfied that he's off the streets. I remember going in that day and the first time I went in, he knew exactly who I was and he knew exactly who Frank was. It was a great feeling. We had been chasing up until the night before, an unknown person, and in less than 24 hours, now he's in custody. My cousin was getting married that day and had a big wedding going on at the Pasadena Hilton, which my two daughters were involved in his wedding. When I got there that night, I walked in, and since I wasn't following news, I could hear people saying, that's him, that's him, that's Mm -hmm. him. My family came up, gave me a great big hug, and my mom and my sisters, and everybody was embraced, and they were all crying. And I just said, it's okay. It's over with. And you got to enjoy the ceremony at the very least. Um, well, I just just for a little bit because I, I was too tired. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to take away from my cousin's wedding. It's his night. 
I'm just going to go to bed. Yeah. You know, the series really, uh, for me, focused less on Richard Ramirez and more on the people around this case, victims, police, uh, families of both. For people who are about to watch this series, who think they know a lot about the Night Stalker saga, what's the one thing, Gil, that you hope they come away with it uh, from what they see? I hope they come away with the fact that they see that uh, cops are human. You know, they have feelings, they work hard, they have personal lives. And the time consumption it takes is a lot different than people perceive. For me, I shed tears watching it, bringing back memories. But I really hadn't realized the impact, the pressure, the stress, and the fear that my family was under. And in watching this, I literally apologized and asked, told my wife I was so sorry. I had no idea how much she had gone through. That's Gil Carrillo, L.A. County Sheriff's Detective. He worked the Night Stalker case back in the 80s, and he's featured in the Netflix series Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer. Gil, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. And you can learn more about this series in our interview with director Tiller Russell. You can find that at LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. All right, changing the subject now to love. We close out today's show with a request from you, our listeners, for love stories. Yeah, we want love stories. For the past few years, Los Angeles, we have asked you to share your love stories on Valentine's Day. Like Amber Phillips of Pasadena. She shared her story with us last year. Amber met her husband, Tom, when he was rehearsing a play with her roommate. Now, one day, Amber called him by his last name, and little did she know, it would kickstart their L.A. romance. Our courtship was fueled by Silver Lake and the East Side. We went to see concerts at Spaceland and saw bands we knew at Silver Lake Lounge, had drinks at Al Conquistador. Many of these places don't even exist anymore, I don't think. These are the places where we fell in love, further and further in love with each other. We get it almost every night. In his wedding vows, Tom told me he fell in love with me that first day that we met when I called him by his last name, that it was like a lightning bolt to his heart. And he was in love with me from that day forward. Wow, lightning bolt to the heart. All right, KPCC listeners, we want to keep this tradition going. So what's your L.A. love story? Do you have a meet, a cute, uh, a meet cute story that uh, took place here in L.A., a romantic tale that happened in the City of Angels? We want to hear them. Share your stories with us by tweeting us at Take Two. That's at Take Two. Or DMing us on Facebook or Instagram at Take Two Show. That's at Take Two Show. My wife kind of did the same thing back then. Hey, Martinez. She called me by her last name. It was my real name. Take two tomorrow, 2 o'clock. Be there.